hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And um, this is part two of the Frankie Lyman story. I will call this the afterlife of Frankie Lyman. And there are a lot of details here. I'm trying to tell it in a way that cuts down on some of the confusion, but it's a lot of stories and overlapping stories. So um, just try to follow it as uh, easily as you can. Anyway, in 1981, Diana Ross had a hit song in her remake of the doo-wop classic, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? This was 25 years after Frankie Lyman and the teenager's original version set the music world on fire. And it was 13 years after the death of Frankie Lyman. The resurgence in the popularity of this song caused questions about who was seeing the proceeds. Who wrote the song? Who owned the publishing? Who was getting rich? It was always said that all the members of the teenagers helped to write the song, all five of them. But George Goldner made changes to the song, so he helped to write it too. Back then, though, they could only have a maximum of three writers credited on a song. It wasn't really like now where you might have ten writers credited with writing a song since just about all of the songs that come out now feature a lot of um, sampled material. And it still seems to be hard for the proper people to get credit. I googled who really wrote Why Do Fools Fall in Love and Frankie Lyman, Jimmy Merchant, Herman Santiago, and George Goldner popped up. Now, it's a picture of, a, I guess, a different Jimmy Merchant than the one that was in the Teenagers that pops up along with it. But um, these four names pop up. That's four people. But the record was initially credited to Frankie Lyman, Herman Santiago, and George Goldner. Over time, it was credited only to Frankie Lyman and George Goldner. Goldner's name was then replaced with Morris Levy when he took over G Records. So it's credited to Frankie Lyman and Morris Levy. And I think that Herman Santiago has demonstrated how he contributed to um, the lyric with um, using that 1625 chord pattern um, that's used on Why Do Fools Fall in Love and other songs that he wrote for the group. Frankie contributed lyrics and did the vocal arrangement for his lead vocal in order to fit his vocal style. Um, in 1987, Merchant and Santiago sued Morris Levy for songwriting credit. They were both living in poverty at this point, and um, Frankie Lyman was not the only teenager to die young. The six-foot-six-inch bass singer Sherman Gorns died on February 26, 1977 of a heart attack when he was just 36 years old. And on September 5th, 1978, Joe Negroni suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died just four days shy of his 38th birthday. The defendants in the Merchant Santiago case included not only Morris Levy, but Emira Eagle Lyman as well. Santiago said that he was threatened with injury or death when he asked for songwriting credit back in 1969. And he and Jimmy Merchant were threatened at other times when they tried to get songwriter credits. In 1992, the United States Federal Court ruled that Santiago and Merchant were co-writers of Why Do Fools Fall in Love. The defendants in the Merchant, <clears throat> excuse me, Merchant Santiago case included not only Morris Levy, but Amira Eagle Lyman as well. 
For those who might have forgotten, Amira Eagle Lyman is the woman that Frankie married on June 30th, 1967, just eight months before he was found dead in February of 1968. Six years prior to the ruling of Herman Santiago and Jimmy Merchant as the rightful songwriters of Why Do Fools Fall in Love, Amira was in court duking it out with two other women to prove that she was the rightful widow of Frankie Lyman. The other women claiming to be his widow were singer Zola Taylor, a.k.a. Ash Taylor, and Elizabeth Mickey Waters. They would claim that they were married to Frankie but never divorced from him. Frankie had gotten to know Zola when the two were on the road with his group, the Teenagers, and her group, the Platters. She was the only girl singer in the group. She would claim that they went on to consummate their love in Bangor, Maine, after Frankie won $1,700 gambling with Clyde McFadder. At the time, she was about 18 and looked 25. Frankie was 13 or 14 and looked 10. The passionate relationship was off and on for a number of years. When he was down and out, he showed up unannounced at Zola's home in Los Angeles, where he mooched off of her. She was still doing well career-wise, and his, his career was mostly over by this time, save for the occasional record hop appearance. She tried to help him out by buying him new clothes and allowing him to stay with her at her home. The whole time, he was two-timing her, at the very least, with Elizabeth Waters. According to Elizabeth, she and Frankie began living together in 1962, and she put him in the hospital to get him off of drugs. She became pregnant by him in 1963. Frankie was allegedly clean at this time, and she claimed that he was devastated when their two-pound baby girlfriend, Francine, died two days after her birth. Elizabeth and Frankie were married in Alexandria, Virginia in 1964. The problem was that Elizabeth was still legally married to Charles Phillips, a man that she'd married when she was 16. Elizabeth's divorce from Phillips was granted in 1965, but her lawyer had argued that because the couple had lived in Philadelphia, the couple meaning Elizabeth and Frankie, they were common law partners under the laws of the state of Pennsylvania. The relationship that Frankie and Elizabeth had was very stormy. They were always breaking up and making up, and she turned to drugs to cope and prostitution to keep herself and her young daughter from her former marriage afloat. She and Frankie both struggled with drug problems and legal woes as well. Frankie's period of sobriety didn't last long. He left for the West Coast, and that was where he managed to reconnect with Zola Taylor. Things became very dramatic when he invited Elizabeth to come stay with him in Zola's house. He fought with each woman about the other, and Elizabeth would claim that Frankie pulled a gun on her, and that led to her leaving him. Frankie and Zola were allegedly married a month later in Tijuana, Mexico, and they had a cake and champagne celebration, according to her. Frankie had always told Elizabeth that Zola was a mother figure to him. Zola was not able to prove that she and Frankie were ever married. There were no official documents of a marriage, and they both publicly claimed that the marriage was nothing more than a publicity stunt. Zola felt entitled to whatever she could get from Frankie because she had allowed him to stay in her home while she was in Japan on tour. He was supposed to pay her bills out of an allowance, but when she got back from the road, her home was in foreclosure and Frankie was long gone. Understandably, she was furious. She would never see him again, but her claim was soon tossed out of court. Amira had proof of her marriage. 
She had the marriage license and proof that she and Frankie had a proper church wedding at the Beulah Grove Baptist Church before 50 guests. She knew an entirely different man from the one that Zola Taylor and Elizabeth Waters described. She knew a man who was a soldier and a hopeless romantic who treated every day like a birthday or an anniversary. He would start her car for her on cold mornings and scrawled I love you on the car window with shaving cream. She was very different from the other women too. She was not a hustler nor was she an entertainer. She was a well-educated church-going southern lady. She knew that her husband had had a drug problem and she told him firmly that she would not be putting up with any drug nonsense. She arranged Frankie's burial in New York City and paid the $2,000 bill. Initially, the court sided with Elizabeth Waters because her divorce from Charles Phillips instantly validated her marriage to Frankie. On appeal, though, the court would side with Amira, likely because Elizabeth lied about her previous marriage to Charles Phillips. So Amira is known as the legal and rightful widow of Frankie Lyman. There was an appeal in the Santiago Merchant case, too and they lost their case when the judge ruled that the statute of limitations had run out and Morris Levy was awarded the legal rights to the song. That was in 1996 and Morris Levy was dead by that time, so his estate retained the rights to the song. Lyman and Levy were now credited with writing the song. EMI Music Publishing is the song's current publisher and still lists the song as a Lyman-Levy composition. As far as Frankie's death, there are many people who question the official narrative that Frankie Lyman died of acute intravenous narcotism or heroin overdose. Or at least <clears throat> they question if he died of a self-administered heroin overdose. He is said to have been found by an uncle of his. There are questions about where Frankie was found. The story that has stuck is that he was found on the bathroom floor of his grandmother's apartment with the heroin needle next to his body, not inside his arm or anything like that, but next to the body. Other reports had him found at a friend's apartment. Still another report had him found in a nearby alley. A popular story is that Frankie was excited about new career opportunities and wanted to celebrate by indulging in heroin. I don't know where this story originates from, but it's a popular story and is even restated on Wikipedia. It's just assumed to be the case, like an urban legend that's believed um, because it's been repeated so much. Addicts do sometimes relapse, as we all know, and Frankie had relapsed after brief periods of sobriety in the past. At this time, though, he had been clean for quite some time, and he had plans for the future. No autopsy was performed on the body of Frankie Lyman. There is yet another woman that history seems to have forgotten all about. Her name is Antonia Figueroa del Sol, aka Tony Ventura, and she was the niece of George Goldner. She claims to be Frankie Lyman's first love and greatest inspiration, and she has said that she knows in her heart that people were after Frankie. She said that he owed drug dealers, and these dealers collected in blood. There were some folks in the city bragging that their bag killed Frankie Lyman. I had said in the previous episode that Frankie had told Amira that he really didn't want to go back to New York. Is this the reason why? Elizabeth Waters said that she saw Frankie the day before he died, and he was upbeat and looking forward to the future. She also said she saw his body after death, 
and there was a bruise on his head consistent with a possible beating, I guess. Was Frankie set up? And then there's the question of Sam Bray, the manager who supposedly pulled Frankie out of the gutter. Who was this man? They say that he had never even met Frankie before pulling him out of the so-called gutter, putting him in the hospital for the heroin cure, and signing him to Big Apple Records. He might have been an associate of the very crooked and very brutal Morris Levy. Frankie and members of the teenagers had plans to sue Levy over music rights. Frankie was a virtual has-been at this time, working towards a comeback, but maybe Frankie was worth more to them dead than alive. Think about it, this would have been a great time to kill Frankie and get his name and music out there again to generate sales. And since everybody knew about his past struggles with heroin, everyone would just assume that he died of an OD, with few or no questions asked. He could have died in a completely different way, with his killer or killers placing a needle next to the body so that it would appear the way they wanted it to appear. Frankie was buried in an unmarked grave in the Bronx. For years, Frankie's tombstone sat in the window of Ronnie Italiano's Clifton Music Store. It was displayed on fake grass with artificial flowers surrounding it. Ronnie Italiano, a music fan and record shop owner from New Jersey, managed to raise $3,000 in order to purchase a tombstone and to have it engraved in 1976, eight years after Frankie's death. Italiano contacted Amira Eagle Lyman in Georgia. They discussed raising money to purchase Frankie's headstone. Amira was on board initially, so there was a benefit with some singing groups from the East Coast. Amira then asked them to hit the pause button because she was still in court trying to prove that she was the legal widow of Frankie Lyman. Amira didn't put a headstone on Frankie's grave until right before the release of the film, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which tells the story of Frankie Lyman's relationships with his three wives and the court battle over his estate. Now, that film didn't come out until 1998, 30 years after Frankie's death. This left Ronnie Italiano with Frankie's tombstone, which he always saw as the official tombstone. The tombstone remained in the window until the shop closed its doors permanently in 2012, four years after the passing of Ronnie Italiano. A friend of the Italianos, Pam Nadarla, had the stone moved to her home via boom truck. It cost her $250, but she wanted to save the headstone from a rock pile fate. After all, it was music fans who had raised the money for Frankie's headstone. The stone spent eight years in Pam Nardella's Elmwood Park, New Jersey backyard before its 2020 move to a Michigan museum. Even Frankie's tombstone has a unique life story. I could say more, but I'll just leave it here. R.I.P. to Frankie Lyman, a very talented young man who lived too fast and died much too young. R.I.P. Two to the other departed original teenagers who don't get any attention. Sherman Garns and Joe Negroni. This was a wild story. Frankie Lyman was really something else. But anyway, I'm Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered. And uh, I will see you soon with uh, more stories. <laughs>